And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Saturday Slammin' Jam. Hosted by Andrew Schlicht with Alex Spears. How about we can just watch basketball? That's a man's jam! I like that idea. Live from Oklahoma. With questions and participants from all around the world. Anthony Edwards! Put that on a poster! Whether you're flipping your flapjacks, tending to your yard, or just sipping your coffee, get ready, sit back, relax. It's the Saturday Slammin' Jam. Back is I missed this shot, I'll walk away, I'm still a chump. Here's Andrew. Welcome to the Saturday Slam and Jam on a Friday. I'm your host, Andrew Schlecht. Go to theathletic.com slash NBA show and get The Athletic for half price. You have to do it. We've got Media Day right around the corner for all the teams. All the guys are coming back. We have Instagram posts of Westbrook and LeBron together wearing the purple and gold. So you gotta, gotta go check that out. With me, as always, on our show is my good friend Alex Spears. Alex, what's up? What's up, Andrew? Still in the off season. <laughs> Still here. <laughs> September 16th is the day we're recording, and not a lot of news. As you are about to hear from my most interesting <laughs> thing of the week. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I've been most interested over this past year and have been wrestling with is how to contextualize the dramatic increase in offensive efficiency we've seen across the league in recent seasons. Yeah. We talked about this a few months ago when we were discussing the Cavs and how Colin Sexton and Darius Garland both put up incredible historical statistical seasons given their age. Mm-hmm. But it's not just Sexton. It's young players across the league who are putting up stat lines that go toe-to-toe with the all-time great. So just some examples. Take De'Aaron Fox, for instance. Last year, Fox put up 25 and 7 in his age 23 season. Now, I'm not adding in any crazy stat qualifiers, just 25 points a game, seven assists per game, age 23. And maybe that stat line doesn't sound too crazy, but there have only been six other players that have done that in NBA history by the age of 23. And their names are Oscar, LeBron, <laughs> Luca, Trey, Tiny Archibald, and Derek Rose all either in the Hall of Fame or likely to be other than Rose, whose career was derailed by injury. What about Michael Porter Jr.? He put up 19-7 and on 54% shooting at age 22. Again, not the craziest stat line, you know, 19.7 rebounds per game, 54% shooting. It's only been done by 14 other players, though, in NBA history by age 22. And so he's in the company of guys like Shaq, Bob McAdoo, Amare, Dwight, Tim Duncan, Charles Barkley, Chris Webber, Blake Griffin, along with other young guys who are putting up historical numbers like Cat, Zion, and John Collins, who has hit those marks twice before the age of 23. What about Andrew? Thunder guy, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. He yeah. averaged 23 points, five assists, shooting 50% of the field, 50% from the field. At the age of 22. You know what? For this one, let's expand it to age 25, okay? All you got to do 
is averaged 23 points per game, five assists per game, shooting 50% from the field. By age of 25, Shea's only 22. Who do, who's done that? MJ, KD, LeBron, Oscar, Jokic, Giannis, Clyde Drexler, Chris Mullen, and Chris Weber. All current Hall of Famers or future Hall of Famers. Now, I find Ooh. I find all of these statistical comparisons interesting because, one, they're an easy way to convince someone that the young player on your team is already on the path to being an all-time great. Uh, oh, yeah. But, oh, yeah. two, I think they are some of the best examples we have of the current NBA age that we're living through. We are in an mm-hmm. age of juice stats. It's never been easier to score in the NBA than it is today. And as a result, we are getting all-time seasons from multiple players every single year. And personally, as someone who isn't able to watch every single team every night, these incredible statistical seasons have made it increasingly difficult to form an opinion and compare the young players in the game. Like some, I think Colin Sexton is like the perfect example because I think like around the league, there's almost like a neutral or negative opinion of Colin Sexton. Like when people talk about him, they think, Oh, he's just a Chuck or whatever. But it's like, you look at his stats and he's not just like a good score. He's like a historically great score. Like maybe he has (laughs) issues defensively. Maybe he doesn't shoot as many threes as you would hope for, but like he's an insane scorer. And so it's really hard to judge your opinion on these players because like in a world where every young player looks like an all time great statistically, how can you be down on any of these guys? And on the flip side, we're seeing more and more historical anomalies going the other way too. So as an example, during the playoffs this year, we had some really horrendous shooting lines. Drew Holiday shot four of 20 in the finals. Embiid shot four of 20 in the Eastern Conference semi game. Jimmy Butler shot four of 22 in the first round. Bad shooting nights. So what? That happens all the time, right? Well, actually, these games aren't that common. There have only been 48 instances of a player taking at least 20 shots in a playoff game and shooting less than 20%. In the past 20 years, It's only happened 11 times, and seven of those games have occurred in the last three seasons. The point being that the way the game is being played now is leading to these statistical extremes, both good and bad, which leads me to the actual thing I want to talk about today. This was all a ruse, Andrew. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, uh, everything I just talked about was all just an excuse to talk about a player I learned about a few months ago that I've been waiting to share with our Slam and Jam listeners. I was waiting for the right moment, and what better time than the offseason? Because as I was researching the worst shooting games in NBA playoff history, shout out to Stathead, one name kept popping up. Remember how there were 48 games in NBA playoff history where a player took 20 or more shots and shot less than 20%? Would you believe there is a player in NBA history that accounted for six of those games? That's mm. right. I am, of course, talking about jumping Joe Folks. Wow. Joe Folks, born in 1921. He entered the NBA at age 25 after serving as a Marine in World War II and attending Murray State, also the alma mater of John Morant campaign. Folks played for the Philadelphia Warriors and was one of the greatest scorers of his generation. He won the league's first wow. scoring title set numerous single-game records, including scoring 63 points in a game in 19... First scoring title. Yes, now this was the BAA, which was the predecessor okay. to the NBA. But yes, he was the first okay. scoring title. He scored 30, or 63 points in a game in 1949, a record that wouldn't be broken for a decade when Elgin Baylor scored 64. He is wildly considered one of the pioneers of the modern jump shot and was elected into the Basketball Hall of Fame 
1978. But here's the interesting part, because while Jumpin' Joe Folks was indeed one of the greatest scorers of his time, he was not a model of efficiency. Shooting 30% (laughs) from the field for his career, he didn't care about efficiency. Andrew, he wasn't worried about PER or Raptor or real plus minus. He won the scoring title (laughs) shooting 30% from the field. How many shots is he taking? Well, Andrew, we're getting to that. Okay. Because this guy was a hooper, Andrew. He was there to hoop, (laughs) and Jumpin' Joe Folks never hooped as much as he did in the 1948 semifinals when the Philadelphia Warriors played the St. Louis Bombers. Remember how I said that Joe had six of those playoff games in NBA history where a player took 20 shots while shooting under 20% in the playoffs? Well, three of those games occurred in one series. Game one. Jumpin' Joe shoots six for 38 in a two-point loss to the Bombers. The next game, though, game two, Jumpin' Joe comes back, shoots seven for 36 in a one-point win that even the series. Woo! Now, the Warriors would win game three in a blowout, which led to game four, where Jumpin' Joe would put up perhaps the greatest shooting line in NBA playoff history in a five-point loss to the Bombers, Jumpin' Joe Folks took 46 shots and made eight of them. Eight for 46. Russell Westbrook wishes he had the green light that Jumpin' Joe Folks did back in 1948. Now, game four, however, was a turning point for Joe. He shot above 20% (laughs) in each of the next three games, including a respectable six for 19. He held back in game seven a win that would send the Warriors to the 1948 Finals, where they eventually lost to the Baltimore Bullets in six. As I mentioned earlier, Joe would go on to become a Basketball Hall of Famer posthumously, and to this day, he holds the records for most missed field goals in a game, both for the regular season and the playoffs. The regular season record will likely never be broken. In a March 1948 game against the Providence Steamrollers, Joe Folks missed 42 shots in a single game. 42. He missed 42 shots in a single game. We talk about how Wilt Chamberlain has like all the crazy records. Yeah. And he is second. Wilt Chamberlain is second on this record. But Joe Folks, number one, probably for all time. Spell the last name real quick. F-U-L-K-S. Okay. Yeah. No one... In NBA history, exemplifies the shoot-your-shot motto better than Jumpin' Joe Folks, and hopefully a few more people will now have learned about this legend and his memory will live on. Unbelievable. He is the great-great-grandfather of J.R. Smith. I heard that. I heard that's true. Wait, what? No, not true at all. Oh, my. That would (laughs) blow my mind. (laughs) Oh, man. That's incredible. That is incredible off-season stats right there. And, and hopefully we, we someday may, you know, if, if anybody is going to break that record, maybe it's somebody on the Thunder this year. Maybe. I mean, th- this is like the real use case for Stathead, in my opinion, because yeah. you like look at all these stats and then you sort it by date. And all of a sudden you see this guy who in a <laughs> week span went something like 20 for 120 or something. Yeah. It was just absurd. And I would have never known about him otherwise. Turns out he's a Hall of Famer. <laughs> oh, man. Everybody's Hall of Famer from, from what I can tell. But, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's great, man. What a great stat. That's amazing. So two weeks ago, I did Western Conference 
players to watch for that could break out, possible breakout candidates. And so I decided to go to the Eastern Conference and I found it to be a lot more difficult in the Eastern Conference. So most of these guys that I've chosen, it's all about opportunity or two of them, Alex, not even opportunity, but potential opportunity that they could have. So my first one is Aaron Neesmith, a wing for the Boston Celtics. Okay. And the case for Neesmith is one, like he didn't play a whole lot last year, only 669 minutes off the bench. And they just don't really have guys that can shoot it coming off the bench. They have... And they also have a ton of guys that are playing on the perimeter that aren't going to shoot it well. Dennis Schroeder, Marcus Smart, Josh Richardson, Romeo Langford. Like, those guys are going to shoot it. Like, all those guys are willing shooters, but none of them are knockdown shooters. The only knockdown shooter they have on the team, outside of Tatum and Brown, is Peyton Pritchard. Yeah. And Peyton Pritchard, he was incredible last year, but he's just so small. Like, honestly, like, it limits you in what you can do with when he's on the court defensively. So to me, Aaron Neesmith is a guy that even like he's a good spot up shooter. He showed some juice off the bounce a little bit uh, in summer league. So I really like the idea of having him out there with Tatum and Brown. He gives them better size. He gives them a better chance to be more versatile. And then you can throw one of Smart, Schroeder, Josh Richardson out there too. Uh, and if you want to play small, like he's your option. So I could see him getting a lot of minutes this year and making lots of shots for them and kind of being like their token shooter off the bench. Uh, and he's, it's his second-year guy, so to, to me, lots of, lots of second-year guys make a leap. So Aaron Neesmith is my first one. Yeah, I, I like that. I'm, I'm very interested to see how many minutes per game Schroeder gets. Yeah. Because, you know, typically in his career, he's demanded a lot of minutes, and, you know, he's a perfectly good player. But, yeah, there are some other guys on that Boston roster that I kind of would like to see more. Yeah. And I, I don't, it feels like they're kind of in this transition period anyway, where you'd want to prioritize someone like Aaron Neesmith. So we'll see if they do that or not. Yeah. I think, I think Neesmith should play. I mean, he only played 14 minutes per game last year. I mean, even, I'm not saying like he needs to play 30, but if you up it to like right. 20, I think that that will increase his usage. I think his efficiency could be better than it was last year. I think he's better than a 37% three point shooter. And if he's up upset to like 42 and he's scoring 10 points a game, like, wow, okay, nice season for Aaron Neesmith. Uh, next one, Tyrese Maxey from the Philadelphia 76ers. Mm. So Maxey's a really interesting player on pro- easily the most interesting team right now in the NBA just because of all the Ben right. Simmons stuff. And a Ben Simmons trade could dramatically affect what's going to happen with Maxi. So if they are able to trade for a Damian Lillard or somebody like that, like maybe Maxi doesn't make the leap that he could, uh, and he'll still have a role off the bench. But there, there's a chance that the dust settles. They trade Ben Simmons. They get back players that maybe aren't going to be like a lead guard, and Maxi could be their starting point guard. Like there is a world where that happens. Doesn't that, uh, that scare you? It does a little bit, but he, I think, I think I, I'm a Tyrese Maxey believer. Uh, again, like similar with Neesmith, like he only played 15 minutes per game last year. The shooting efficiency stuff is definitely the scariest stuff there, but he shot the ball well from the free throw line, 87% from the line. And in game six against the Hawks, Doc Rivers relied on him heavily and he delivered 16 points, six boards, played for them, like played big minutes for them, played 30 minutes that night. So 
I, th- I think that this year they're going to rely on him a little bit more, whether or not they trade Ben Simmons or whatever happens. And even if they trade for another creator, like they are just void of perimeter creation. Like, well, that's I was what say, this team really struggles if, with. If they didn't bring back a creator in a Ben Simmons trade, like that is a ton of pressure on Tyrese Maxey because of what you just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, outside of Embiid, like Embiid can create offense, but you still need perimeter creation. Like Maxey's like the guy. He's the guy. And that's one of the huge faults of this team. And you can see, I mean, we we cover the Thunder, but like they they're creating a team where like almost everybody on the team can create, right? Like like every single person. Like they could have a starting five. They could create a starting five where it's like, okay, like every single one of those guys can go get a bucket. And with the Sixers team, they're extremely limited. And so this is why this is part of why I think Maxi could have a breakout season just because I think they're going to put the ball in his hands some. And he's going to have a chance to do it. And he was pretty good um, on drives. He, I think he scored about the same amount of points that Ben Simmons did on drives with half the amount of drives. So I, I think that he's got a shot to really be a good player. And if he, really it's all, if he can up the shooting efficiency, he could be a legitimate starting guard in the NBA. He's got all the other tools to get there. So I'm interested to see what he can do this year, just as a guy that can penetrate and kick or, you know, finish at the rim. Like he's, to me, he's a really interesting player and almost like if he's on any other team, I don't know that he gets this kind of opportunity, but just because he's on the Sixers, I think that there's going to be big time opportunity for Tyrese Maxey this year. And to be fair to the Sixers, all that creation in Oklahoma City uh, got as the worst offense in the league. So we really can't toot that creation horn too much, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean. No, I know. I get it. Yeah. No, it's not to say like OKC is like some like juggernaut or something. I'm just saying like what they're building for in the future is like what most like NBA teams that are great have. Like lots of different guys that can go do something like either pass or shoot. Right. But the Sixers are they've just been built in such a strange way where somehow Tobias Harris is their best creator yeah, know, outside, sure. outside of Ben Simmons. So, or, or Joel Embiid, not Ben Simmons. Um, but yeah, the Ben Simmons stuff is, well, is really the hinge for all of this and for the entire roster, really like what's going to happen. He's obviously for the future of the franchise. Andrew. Not, not going to play for the Sixers again. And I don't know. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to see what happens with Maxi. Uh, next one. Our old friend, Hamadou Diallo. Oh, interesting. Hami. Hami, a second-round pick. He he just got a brand-new deal. Uh, Not many guys that are chosen as late in the draft as as he was get this second deal. He was the 45th pick in the draft. So big ups to him for that. And also, I think he, he just sneakily got so much better last year with the Thunder and with Detroit. And it's not just shooting. Like the, some of the shooting stuff got better. He's he was better at the rim than he was in the past. He's, you know, in, when he was in Detroit, he shot the three ball well. I don't really believe in that so much, and that to me that doesn't really matter so much. But his ball handling and driving and creation skills for himself improved dramatically from year two to year three. And now that he kind of has maybe some pressure off of him, like he feels like he can is going to be a pro for a long time. He's with a team that I think he's comfortable with. I think he could play a lot for this Detroit team. I think that he is probably more ready to play alongside of Katie Cunningham than Killian Hayes is. 
And Killian's obviously like way more important to the team than Hamadou Diallo is, but like Hami's only 23. It's not like Hami's like super old. Uh, again, similar with Tyrese Max, like a lot of this will it, to push him from like the 23 minutes he had last year to like 30. Like he just has to shoot the ball better, and to play alongside Cade, like he's got he has to shoot the ball better. But he did shoot 39% from three when he was with Detroit in 20 games, which is it's well, it's, an, it's a baffling <laughs> number to me. I, I didn't I didn't know that. He actually, it's funny, he took the exact same amount of threes for Oklahoma City and Detroit and ended up shooting 39%. He was 16 of 41 uh, from three in Detroit. So tiny sample size. There's not a lot there. You can't really take much away from that. But if he if he can be a 33% three-point shooter, 34%, and do all the, like he's very versatile on defense. He's one of the most dangerous players in transition. He can, he'll dunk everything. He's really figured out a lot of stuff last year, and, it, and to me, it was a, most of it was figured out within his handle, because that's something that was really kind of scary in the years past, where like every single drive was an adventure for Hami, where you just didn't know what was going to happen, and that changed last year. That changed, and so I'm interested to see him. I think that he actually fits pretty well with this squad, with Jeremy Grant and with Cade, so I think he'll come off the bench for them. But he can play, you know, he can play the two and three. And I think he's going to be a very valuable player for them this year and, and could surprise. I think that he could be a guy that plays up to 30 minutes a night and surprises uh, people across the league. So Hamadou Diallo. Yeah, uh, I mean, combining him with like Isaiah Stewart, like a lot of high energy guys. Yeah. He has some elite athleticism that isn't all the way or isn't present throughout that roster. Yep. Um so I think he brings something there. Yeah, I like him in roster, or I like him in lineups where Killian Hayes isn't there because I still don't trust Hamadou Diallo shooting. But if you pair sure. him with Cade, Sadiq Bay, Jeremy Grant, like there's some pretty fun lineups you can get to. Yeah, and he can go. I like, he'll go get a bucket, and he can get to the rim. So that's to me, he's a really and he's a really exciting player too. So uh, hope the Hami has a great year. Now these last two Al are very dependent on what happens with their teams. This first one, I think maybe regardless, could get some minutes. It's Malachi Flynn for the Toronto Raptors. Lots of second-year guys, Al. There wasn't a lot to work with here. But Malachi <laughs> Flynn, to me, is he was a 32% three-point shooter last season for the Raptors. I think he's a lot better than that. Uh, seven and a half points, 2.9 assists. Like He didn't do a whole lot in 20 minutes per game last year. He only played 47 games for them. But I think that just the stability that this Raptors team is going to have for this season, being back in Toronto, feeling like you're at home again, feeling like you finally have a normal season, I think could be good for a lot of guys and especially some of these young guys. Uh, and Malachi Flynn, to me, looked like one of the better players in summer league. He was very poised. He was making his shots. He just looked really good out there. And so I, I think with the, the lack of guards that are on this Toronto team, especially if Goran Dragic either is traded or bought out or whatever happens with him, then you can see like an immediate role for him. Uh, if, if Dragic is there, maybe it's a little bit more difficult to even get him back to the 20 minutes that, that he had before. Uh, but outside of Dragic and Van Vliet, like, the only other guards that are on this team, like you have rookie David Johnson, who's on this team. 
um, Svi Mihailuk, who's not, we know Svi, he's not a point guard. Like, that's it. Like, that's the list. And they have other guys that are going to handle. Obviously, Pascal's going to handle. I think that um, they're, they're going to have other guys that are going to handle on this team outside of their guards. But to me, I, I see the role there, especially if Dragic is gone for Malachi Flynn to step in and be like a really nice piece off the bench that's going to – I mean, he could score 12, 15 points per game. Nothing crazy, but like, oh, like a nice little jump for Malachi Flynn. Now, is your last choice as deep of a cut – as the last time you did this? It's pretty deep, actually. Okay. It's a pretty deep cut. It's not it's not as insane <laughs> as my <laughs> last one. But it is Goga Patatse. Oh, Goga! So this is completely dependent on them actually doing something that we have heard that's been rumored for what feels like years, right? Yes. That one decade. of their bigs will be traded. And Goga hasn't had much of an opportunity to play for the Pacers. You know, he's just, he is going into his third season. He played eight minutes per game his rookie season and 12 last season. But he, I mean, if you go and look at his per 36 stats, like he, like they explode. Like his block numbers are at almost four per game. Like he's a good rebounder. He, in the G League, like the guy's taking and making threes. I mean, when when he's played in the G League, and they've sent him there a lot, he has looked like one of the better players on the court. And so to me, it's it's free Goga from here. Like, either get him to another team <laughs> or let, let Goga play. Or maybe they make a trade and Goga could be the backup center. I'm not saying that Goga should be some, like, starting-level center. But I mm-hmm. think that he's a guy that should play in the league. I think he should be a big that plays off the bench for somebody. And if you're looking for a big, and if they're willing to give him up for a second rounder, like, go get Goga. Go for Goga. I think mm. this guy's good. I think, he's, I think he's a good player. I think he's being hidden on this Pacers squad and deserves a chance to play. Now, this is, this is eerily reminiscent of your free Bamba movement um, do you feel like Free Goga, you have moved on from Bamba and he is the new Bamba? Yeah, I think that Goga is my new Bamba. Okay, okay. So, so that actually, not great for Goga. <laughs> not the a great track development. Record, the track record isn't great. <laughs> of guys you've wanted to free from their current teams. Of guys that need freedom, in my opinion, it's not been great. <laughs> but he's my de- he is my deepest cut it, i think it's a pretty it's a it's a pretty deep cut he was a first round pick oh that, no that's you know, definitely a deep cut because yeah i i remember doing a little thing for him for another podcast where i had to do some research for him and of yeah. course you do research on any guy before the draft and you like talk yourself into them oh, yeah. and so i was kind of excited about him going to the draft and then he went in the first round and then he just kind of disappeared and honestly the only thing you remember from his rookie season is the fight that he got in with the coach <laughs> Yes. Towards the end of the year. That was like yeah. really the only interesting thing. Yep, that's it. But he's only 22. You know, like somebody needs to give him a shot. <laughs> the Pacers need, need to get him off the shelf. Come on. Free Goga. Uh, okay, let's uh, celebrate some birthdays real quick before we get to our guests. Blow out the candles, get your cake, and eat it too. It's the birthday bash. It's your birthday. Somebody in here, it's your birthday. It's your birthday. Somebody in here, it's your birthday. It's your birthday. Everybody it's been two weeks of birthdays. I'm going to give you two names. You're going to tell me which guy is younger. First okay. up, Gary Harris, Aaron Gordon. Just signing oh. a new deal with the Nuggets. Traded 
for Gary Harris, in fact, who's now Gary Harris is younger. Wrong! Gary Harris turning 27, Aaron Gordon turning 26. What about DeJounte Murray, John Collins? Oh, my. Two young guns. Two young guns. DeJounte Um, Murray, John Collins. John Collins is younger. He is. Only 24, DeJounte Murray turning 25. What about Yao Ming, Ben (laughs) Wallace? Oh, man. Yao Ming, Ben Wallace. Oh, gosh. I'm trying to place where I know where Yao was drafted, what year he was drafted, and I cannot place. Well, that's because Ben Wallace was undrafted. I know. You'll never know it. I know. I'm trying to place the year he came into the league. I'll I'll say that Ben is older. He is older by six years. Ben Wallace is 47. (laughs) Yao Ming is only 41. Is that right? I mean, I hope it is. I may have <laughs> typed wow. it up wrong. I've got a Yao Ming jersey hanging in my office right now. I'll always know. remember that draft. Watched it with That's you. Right. Yep. Uh, next one. John Wall, Serge Abaka. Serge is older. Yes, he is. Serge is 32. John Wall, 31. Next, Tyreek Evans, Lance Stevenson. Hmm. Similar guys. Certainly had a flash in the league. They've been out for a couple of years. Lance is older. Lance is not. Lance, only 31 years old. Tyreek Evans, 32. Both of those weird. are surprising to me. Yeah, that is very surprising. Very weird. Very, very weird. Okay, uh, something else. Is yeah, that you it? You, no, yeah, I was just going to tell you you didn't do great. Okay. Yeah, I did, <laughs> I did bad. <laughs> I'll accept it. I'll accept it here on September 16th. Uh, something that's coming at you real quick after this break is my buddy Keith Parrish to talk about his Memphis Grizzlies. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'd like to welcome in my buddy Keith Parrish. He hosts the Fast Break Breakfast Pod and a Grizzlies pod called Grits and Grinds for Grind City Media. Keith is like genuinely one of my favorite podcasters, full stop, period. So, Keith, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. And Andrew, thanks a lot, man. What, what a nice thing to say. It's 100% and our, true. And our first returning guest. Is that yes. true? Yeah. On Saturday Slam it's and true. Jam. I'm the first returning guest? Yeah. In your face, everyone else? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> uh, so we're going to talk Grizz. So the Grizz had a successful year last season. They made it to the playoffs where guys like John Morant and Dylan Brooks announced their arrival on the biggest stage. Uh, coming off a season like that, I think that most expected the Grizzlies to run it back with a focus on making the playoffs again. But they traded Jonas Valanciunas and then drafted projects like Zaire Williams and Santi Aldama and did 
that does not exactly fit into those expectations. So now, with the summer, to think about the Valanciunas trade and its fallout, how does the Grizzlies offseason fit into how you view their long-term plan? And did the summer feel like a significant deviation or just a continuation of what they've been doing? I, I don't want to be totally state-run media, but I, I don't feel like it was a deviation. I feel like it was a continuation of this vision of long-term growth, and I dispute the allegation that they uh, they, they took some form of step back. I, I know okay. that's the common perception. Hmm. Yeah, I think the common mm-hmm. thought was, oh, they're trading Jonas Valanciunas, you know, for Stephen Adams, who had a rough season last year, and they're taking this project, but you know. I do think that this team feels like, all right, we made the playoffs last year. We made the play in the year before. And I think they're assuming internally they're going to make the playoffs again. I don't think there's any thought whatsoever from top to bottom of that organization. I mean, definitely not the players and the coaches, but not even the front office. I don't think the front office is like, all right, you know what? Let's turn it back from being eighth or ninth in the West to maybe being 10th, 11th, or 12th. I don't think that's the feeling at all. I think they looked at their roster and they'd always known or they always felt like Jonas Valanciunas is not this long-term perfect fit with Ja and Jaron. He's Mm -hmm. not this like integral part of the future. And we're going into the last year. This is the last year of his current deal. And they had an opportunity to say, all right, Jonas was awesome last year, you know, career year for him. He helped the team get to the playoffs, obviously. But Jaron was hurt. He was out the whole year. I think ideally when Jaron is healthy, their vision of the Grizzlies did not include Jonas Valanciunas. And so they they decided, listen, let's move him to the Pelicans because we don't want to re-sign him. We don't want to use our cap space on having this guy around for the next five seasons. Let's then use that to move up in the draft. And we'll take a swing on a project like Zaire Williams. We'll also bring back a future first-round pick. Uh, via the Pelicans from the Lakers. And I think that was just a good bit of business for a team that said, you know what, we don't really want to make a commitment to this guy because we think we're going to be good enough without him. And and I agree with that assessment. I don't feel like it's going to be like that big of a step back. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Off the top of your head, can you name every player that was acquired in trading Jonas Valanciunas and like all the players that were acquired? Yeah. You want me to do that? I want you to do it right now on the show. Yes. So Jonas, so Jonas was traded. Jonas and the picks were traded for uh, Stephen Adams and Eric Bledsoe. Eric Bledsoe was moved to the Clippers for Daniel Laturu, Rajon Rondo, Patrick Beverly. Patrick Beverly was traded for Juancho Hernan Gomez and Jarrett Culver. Juancho Hernan Gomez was traded for uh, Carson Edwards and Chris Dunn. <laughs> Unbelievable. What a what a wild like few weeks for the Grizzlies and like this, it was these, amazing like, for podcasting. Oh, trades. weekly podcast, incredible <laughs> content. Just they gave me something every single week. It was awesome, unreal. So based on what you said about you not seeing like a significant step back, because when you listen to podcasts about the Grizzlies, the thing that everyone says when they bring up Jonas Valanciunas, they say arguably the second best player on the Grizzlies last year. Everyone has to say that when they talk about Jonas. So do you not see the drop-off between him and Steven Adams as significant, or you don't think it really matters, or you think Steven Adams may be a better fit in some ways? It's a good thing I don't have a dog, because if every time I heard someone say Jonas Valanciunas was arguably the best Grizzly last year, I would kick my dog. I would, like, <laughs> I, I don't understand where this came from. I've heard, I, like, I will admit, 
perhaps I am incorrect because I've actually heard a lot of very smart NBA people say this, mm-hmm. but it, it kind of blows my mind. I don't understand what they're talking about. Are they talking about fantasy basketball? Like Jonas Valanciunas was 100% the best Grizzlies player last season in fantasy basketball. Yeah. Very, very consistent outside of the times <laughs> he missed games. When he played, he would give you big numbers, great percentages if you're in a categories league. But John Moran is what stirs the drink. He's the straw that stirs the drink. Then you have Dylan Brooks and Kyle Anderson who were the glue on the wing who did everything. Mm-hmm. Jonas Valanciunas put up huge numbers. And he was the crutch. He was like the safety valve. He was the maybe the safety blanket for like he got all these offensive rebounds. And when the half-court offense didn't work, basically the fallback was let's let Jonas just get the offensive rebound and put it back in. And I do feel like, though, he was honestly replaceable with the guys they have on this roster. I don't think there's much of a step back when Jonas Valanciunas played versus when Xavier Tillman was in the game or when Brandon Clark's in the game or when healthy – when Jaron Jackson Jr. is in the game, the reason I don't think the Grizzlies take much of a step back, like they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna definitely miss him in the half court on offense. I don't project him to be a good offensive team in the half court next season. They haven't been for the last two seasons. But I think getting Jaron Jackson Jr. back more than compensates for that. I think the downgrade from Stephen, I mean from Jonas to Stephen Adams, I don't think it's that significant. Where the increased opportunity for Jaron and Xavier and Brandon Clark is going to be that big of a difference in the win column. He's also one of those weird guys, despite like his on-off numbers, they were very good last year. Like the lineup stats, the analytics said Jonas had a great season. But he's one of those guys when I watch him where it's like, I don't know if he wasn't scoring 20 points per game, I don't know if we'd miss it. I think those points would get picked up somewhere. I'm not sure what his awesome stats, I'm not sure what the contribution is to winning. And I could be totally wrong, and the Grizzlies could be, like, significantly worse next year. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I, I was wrong. But, like, right now my theory, and I think possibly the front office's theory, is what he's doing right now, we can have other guys do that on offense, and then on defense we can be even better with a more versatile defender at the five. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so one thing that everyone seems to agree on is that this upcoming season is a really big one for Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, he's currently eligible for a rookie extension and will be, uh, will be an ex- a restricted free agent this summer uh, if the extension is not offered. So what are the areas of Jackson's game that are the biggest question marks heading into this season? I feel like rebounding is one of them, uh, but like what else? It's, I think it's even simpler. I think it's availability. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunately, it's availability. You know, he, he was banged up a little bit his rookie year. Maybe he could have played at the end of the season and they were tanking, but we're not really sure. But like him missing all of last season and being held out longer than most people anticipated, that might have possibly been a messaging error from the front office where they seemed like they were hinting that he would be available in like January at times, at least yeah. by the trade deadline. And then it got to the end of the year and it's like there's 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 15 games left. He's going to play next week. And it was like, this is really strange. So I do think though, if he comes out and with this healthy offseason is just the guy we saw in, in year one and two, that a lot of these worries will be allayed and we won't care that much. We'll be like, all right, this is this guy, this guy's the promising young 
stretch four slash five that, that we've gotten so excited about. I mean, if he starts creating off the dribble just a little bit more, I think then he can move from like that 17-point-per-game score he was in his second year to closer to a 20-point-per-game score. And then I think no one's going to care about the rebounding. Like, he is a bad rebounder. Mm-hmm. But also, if he wasn't on the perimeter all the time, by design, like, they, they're on purpose, he's a shooter. They have him yep. at the three-point line. Yep. You know, if he moved inside, he would average six, seven more rebounds. But I don't, I mean, six, seven total rebounds, excuse me. I don't think there's any <laughs> chance he ever gets to a double-digit rebounds in his career. But, uh, you know, I'm not as worried about the rebounding as I am just like, let's just see him on the court. Let's see him mm-hmm. on the court for an extended amount of time. And then we'll start seeing those, like, unicorn-type plays. And it's funny, we forget when he was drafted, he was 18 years old, and he was a project. Yeah. The idea was like, this guy might not help us, much like drafting Zaire Williams this year, like this guy might not help us for a couple of years, but we think he has the defensive versatility and a three-point shot that's going to work. Well, it turned out his offense was way further advanced than his defense was, which is surprising to everyone. Mm-hmm. Another thing he needs to improve is like the fouling. Like he he fouls a ton. He fall he fouls almost as much as his teammate Dylan Brooks. And so like he would need to get a little more disciplined on defense and cut those fouls down. But I think as he ages, he just turned 22 of uh, a couple days ago. Like I think he's just maturing into his body and people forget exactly how young he is because it is going into his fourth year. But I think we're going to see, like, if we see the defense coming around and that handle coming with that three-point shot we saw his first two years, then you're like, oh, yeah, that's why this is, that's why everyone thought this guy was a unicorn. That's why the Grizzlies fans were so excited that, like, maybe they have, like, a future all-star. So, I don't know. That was a long-winded way. (laughs) The short bullet points are availability, rebounding, less fouls. But I think, honestly, availability is going to take care of all of it. Yeah. So what's what's his health status? Is he good to go? As far as I know, he's good to go. I mean, okay. as far as they've told us um, that he's been practicing and available and 100% full steam ahead. Looking at the uh, current roster, as it's always been with the Grizzlies the last couple of years, it's incredibly deep. And last year that sometimes led to promising young players like Brandon Clark not always getting minutes for the team. Who do you think could be the odd man or odd men out in Taylor Jenkins' rotation this season? My best guess, if they're if they're really going, this is where they have to balance, like the goals of the season, like the long-term franchise development, and then just making the playoffs this year. If it's just about making the playoffs, like Zaire Williams probably is not playing a minute, but you would assume right. with him being the 10th pick, they're going to try to work him in somewhere. I would guess it's going to be one of those big guys um, who's out of the rotation either Brandon Clark, like he was at the end of the season last year, or Xavier Tillman. I'm anticipating, and most people around Memphis are, that Steven Adams is going to start. But I could also see a scenario where you have Steven Adams maybe not closing games, where like Steven Adams could be the odd man out um, in a rotation. This is something that happened with Jonas Valanciunas that I feel like a lot of people forget in the bubble, in the Orlando bubble, at the end of the 2019-2020 season, when Jaron, before Jaron got hurt, Jonas Valanciunas was not playing fourth quarters for the Grizzlies. Like, it was very apparent at that time, like, oh, they're, they're planning for the future. Their, their front court of the future is Brandon Clark and Jaron Jackson Jr. And so, at that point, going into last season, a lot of people thought, hey, maybe the Grizzlies will trade Jonas Valanciunas. Of course, he then goes out and has a career year because Jaron's not available, and that kind of shifted the fan perspective where now we're kind of shocked when Jonas gets traded. So if you think about could that apply to Steven Adams this year, I could see him maybe drifting out of that lineup. But I think, I mean, to go into it, we know 
John Morant's there, and then Dylan Brooks is there, and then who else? Who else is that starter? Is the question? Maybe Kyle Anderson at the three with Jaron and Stephen at the five, and you know Bain and Melton are going to be in that rotation. Mm-hmm. Tyus Jones presumably still the backup one, and then it's like, okay, do we play Xavier Tillman and Brandon Clark, or do we play? Zyra Williams somewhere in there, maybe kick one of those big guys, Tillman or Clark, out of the rotation. Yeah, yeah, it's it'll it'll be interesting because Stephen Adams is just a really he's an interesting player for them because I don't I think he'll be better than he was with the Pelicans, but if he's not, like the Grizzlies are kind of a perfect team for him to go to because they've got guys behind him that can take the minutes because he he starts off almost every season where it's like oh my gosh Stephen Adams look like he's back like he's so good and then like things just taper off because. He gets hurt. He doesn't treat. I got, he plays through so many injuries, and that's the thing with the Thunder. Like no people don't remember, but he played through a ton of injuries, and he would just get so beat up by the end of the season. Like he's just not contributing hardly anything, and so hopefully they can mitigate that at least some with these younger bigs. Yeah, I think it's a great spot for Steven Adams. He gets to play with like a true point guard again. Maybe like one, like we got to play that year with Chris Paul in Oklahoma City and and he looked great. And then he struggled last year. You know, I don't know what the situation was. Was he banged up? Has the tread come off the tire? Did he just not have a good chemistry with the ball handlers in New Orleans? I think playing alongside John Morant gives him every opportunity for a big bounce back year. But like you say, if he's truly maybe past his prime and not as healthy as he used to be, the Grizzlies don't care because they have other guys. They have plenty of guys. You can have a you can have a front court rotation of you know just play Kyle Anderson at the four, and then you have Jared Jackson Jr., Xavier Tillman, Brandon Clark. You don't need them. Like you could fill all those minutes easily right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith, because it's September 2021, we have to talk about Ben Simmons because that's what we do on an <laughs> NBA podcast is that we talk about Ben Simmons. I know. So yeah. on a grits and grind pod, you discuss a hypothetical idea of the Grizzlies getting involved in a Ben Simmons trade. Is that something that you'd be interested in as a Grizzlies fan or would you be, what would you be willing to give up in a Simmons trade? I am interested as a Grizzlies fan. If you tell me I can get a multiple time all-star under contract for a long time. Who's an all defensive player. I, yes. I'm interested. Like how do you get those people? You can't get those people. So yeah. Yeah. despite the flaws, despite a possible awkward fit with having John Morant and Ben Simmons, I'm absolutely interested. I think an ideal front court pairing, maybe outside of the rebounding is a Jaron Jackson jr. Ben Simmons sure. four or five combination. Like, yeah. Get out of town. That would be nuts. Mm-hmm. That would be fun. I don't care if Ben Simmons can't shoot. I don't care if people are going under Ja Morant's screen. If they get a defensive rebound, there's a good chance they score a layup within five or six seconds, like every single time. Like I think their transition opportunities would be unbelievable. They would be the Grizzlies would be so good at defense. Mm-hmm. I feel like no one knows or talks about the fact that the Grizzlies were they were seventh in defense last year in defensive rating. If you You've gotten rid of Grayson Allen. You've gotten rid of Jonas Valanciunas. Mm-hmm. If you were theoretically to give some front court minutes to a Ben Simmons instead, like <laughs> this team would be unbelievable at defense. Just like yeah. Jaw would be your weak link. He'd be your only weak link. Everybody else, honestly, in like the top ten rotation, is a very good defender. So I'm 100 percent intrigued by it. You know, like where the rubber meets the road. It's like, could the Grizzlies offer anything where the Sixers would be interested? And that's where it gets that's where it gets tougher for me. I would offer them a bunch of draft picks. Like I don't know how many it would take, mm-hmm. but like as far as the guys who could step into the Sixers and play, I think a theoretical idea of something like Kyle Anderson, 
Brandon Clark, and then we'd probably have to give them Melton, and that would break my heart because I think Melton's yeah. like I think oh. he's like has the biggest ceiling of anybody that like no one talks about. Maybe mm-hmm. I mean the, like the hardcore NBA Twitter people talk about him. Like I I only include him because he has seemed like he's fallen out of favor with the Grizzlies coaching staff at times, and I think that might be something that could get the deal done. If you were to do like you know maybe include Tyus Jones because you don't need him anymore if Ben Simmons is coming in to play. He could do some backup one. So if the salary matches, you gave the Sixers, if it's Melton, Brandon Clark, Kyle Anderson, Tyus Jones, and then a couple of picks, like that almost feels like too much for me as a Grizzlies fan because it's like a risk. And right now the Grizzlies are very well set up to play it safe just to see what they have. Mm -hmm. They have six first-round picks in the next three off-seasons. So they can play it safe, maybe make a bigger swing at another time. I'm not eager to give up Melton. I'm not eager to give up Kyle Anderson. Like, if there's a way just to work it out with picks, I'm much more intrigued because, like, as excited as I would be about the the, the dynamism, I guess that's a word, uh, of a Ben Simmons joining this Grizzlies team, risking giving up these young guys who you know are already solid contributors and you have them under good contracts like Melton and Clark and Bain, like, you know, they can be, they're going to be on the team for two to three years if you want them because of their good contracts. Uh, Like that's where it's a, it's a hard decision. I think for the Grizzlies to be like, do we risk it for this? Like, do we risk breaking up what we have right now for this guy? Yeah, it feels like that's every Ben Simmons trade right now. Because I because I believe if you posted that on Sixers Reddit, they would be like, "You're insane." Yeah, take that package right back to Memphis. Like we don't right. want that. Like that doesn't help us. Like what are you talking about? And then like Memphis people are like, "That's way too much for Ben Simmons." Like exactly. that's exactly. like that's every single conversation <laughs> being had right yeah. now. Yeah, I think man, I think if you I talked about this on Grits and Grinds um, in my last episode, I honestly feel like. If you added Melton, Kyle Anderson, and Brandon Clark to the Sixers, I don't think there's that much of a step back. I think Kyle Anderson yeah. can fit alongside Tobias Harris. He can play mm-hmm. with with Embiid. I don't think there's that big of a step back for them. And the Sixers resolve their issue. They're obvious elephant in the room. We resolve this issue. We're not going to take a big step back. And we've also picked up some first-round draft picks that we can then use in subsequent deals maybe to bring in that primary creator that we might need that we didn't pick up in, in this deal. So mm-hmm. it makes sense to me, and I'm with you. That It is funny. They're like Both fan bases are like, no, I wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, last question, Keith, and this is a softball. The Grizzlies are one of the last franchises with no retired numbers, but that will be changing this season with the jersey retirements of Bozebo and Tony Allen. Well, I think everyone has fond memories of that Grizzlies era. Could you speak a little about what those guys meant to that franchise as someone from the area who's been following this team for so many years? Yeah, they really captured some kind of essence of the city. And I know I'm always kind of loath to assign like the narrative device of like, this is how people in this city feel. And I'm not from Memphis. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. But those guys, both of them were kind of underdogs. Like Tony Allen was just a role player. He's a role player who came in and Zach Randolph had had some sort of embarrassing stops on the Clippers and the Knicks was a bit of a laughing stock by the time the Grizzlies acquired him. They got him for the expiring deal of Quentin Richardson. Like they got Zach Randolph for free, essentially. And then Zach Randolph transforms his career, his identity with this like blue collar bruising style of play. And they lift the Grizzlies from a team that in their previous 15 seasons as a franchise had never won a single playoff game to all of a sudden being this like tough team. No one wants to play. And then they, they get the first 
playoff series win in franchise history, upsetting the one-seed Spurs. Then they make the playoffs for seven straight years. We have the great battles with the, you know, you guys' thunder, like, for the time. And, uh, and, and I think just they put the Grizzlies on the map nationally, I feel like, as a good team. The Grizzlies were never on TV, ever, until the Grizzlies got Zebo and Tony Allen and Mike and Mark and those four guys, the core four, just really transformed this team and with such sustained success. I think it's awesome they're getting their jerseys retired. Tony Allen might be my favorite player of all time. And honestly, role players don't normally get their jerseys retired outside of yeah. Nick Collison. And right. so like I'm right. I'm thrilled for Tony Allen that like the role he played is just an agent of chaos as the grindfather, a guy who when he checked in the game caused havoc to break out on the court and his emotion, his locker room presence of just kind of I don't know what you call it, just a disruptor really lifted up this Grizzlies team and made them one of the better NBA teams for like a, a solid like three-year stretch there. And uh, no, I'm just thrilled for them. And uh, I think it's a great part of Memphis history and I'm happy they get recognized. Yeah, I love it because there are those players that you identify with an individual team. But I thought what made the Grizzlies so unique is that there were four players yeah. and they were all connected to that city. And and you can't think about one of them without thinking about the other three. And that, that was just such a cool thing um, to have for the Grizzlies. Okay. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondering. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina wine mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Keith, thank you for answering all of our questions, but it is now time to play Andrew versus the Beat. Now, Keith is our first returning contestant on Andrew versus the Beat, and he is seeking revenge from Andrew, who beat him in the first round. Now, how this works, uh, you already know how it works, but there's eight questions, one through eight. You'll give me a number, one through eight. That'll correspond to a trivia question. It may be easy, maybe hard. If you get it right, you get two points. If you get it wrong, Andrew has a chance to steal for one. So, Keith, start us off with a number between one and eight. Before I pick a number, yes, I beat Andrew last time. Say, oh, you did? I'm pretty yeah, sure you I, beat. I, I, I mean, yeah, yeah I did not. Yeah. I, well, I did not lose to Andrew. I can't. Yeah, yeah. Was that true. at the? So was that at the beginning of your? Sh- I think streak, Andrew, I was the end of. It? I was the end of Andrew's losing streak because yeah, I, I did the, beat him. Oh, yes, he was the okay. last person that I lost to, and then. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then you caught fire. So Wait, you actually you, needed. Are Keith you on a winning you. streak now? 
Well, no, now he, he I was. was not anymore. I was on like a ten week. Ten week. Well, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He started a uh, 11 and one. Got to 11, 11 and one. That's incredible. And it yeah. Is now eleven thirteen and one. So he's had I think two losses. In All right. Well, let's yeah. keep that losing streak going. Yeah. Well, I apologize to Keith. It's fine. So Keith, you can go for two up, two up yeah. up on Andrew. Yeah. Um, Insurmountable. I, I, I will pick the number two. Number two. This player holds the Grizzlies franchise record for highest PER in a single season with a PER of 24.4. That's a tough one to me. I'll go Palgasol. Palgasol, that's a great guess, but it's wrong. Yeah. Andrew, you have a chance to steal. Highest single oh, season boy. PER for the Grizzlies, 24.4. Is this Jonas Valanciunas? It is Jonas Valanciunas. Unbelievable. Isn't that wild? That is wild. I almost by, said that, and then I was second-guessed. Oh, what a mess. And by the way, of course, uh, this this also includes Vancouver Grizzlies history, just so you're aware. Okay. I didn't want to say that to, to sway you. Okay, Andrew, number between one and eight. Uh, number one. Number one. Which Memphis Grizzlies coach holds the franchise record for highest winning percentage during their coaching tenure? Highest winning percentage by a Grizzlies it's... coach. Gosh, your questions are so hard because there's a guy that I just think that it should be, but it's usually mm. not that guy. Mm. Uh, I guess I'll go Jaeger, David Jaeger, final. That is correct, Andrew, for two points. Because Lionel Hollins would have been like the guy I would have thought of, but it's never who you think of. It's never who you think. So back to Keith. I'll take number seven. Question number seven. In 2014, the Grizzlies had a special in-game promotion giving away a free rub-on-neck tattoo in honor of this Grizzlies player. Uh, James Bloodsport Johnson. That is correct for two points. <laughs> Three to two, back to Andrew. Amazing. Uh, let's go eight. Question number eight. In the playoffs, Ja Morant scored 47 points, breaking the single-game record for most points in Grizzlies franchise history set by this player. Is this Mike Miller? It is Mike Miller. Not supposed to get that, Andrew. Usually I say before each time that I feel like these questions are easy, and this week might be the one. You guys are nailing (laughs) all of these. Back to Keith. I'll take number six. Number six. Ooh, the toughest one. How many players currently on the Grizzlies roster have played at least five seasons in the NBA? So you, you, I, I gotta, I gotta say him. Steven Adams, Kyle Anderson, and I'm now counting Dylan Brooks seasons. Um, yeah, uh, two. Two. That is incorrect. Andrew, you have a chance to steal. Three. I mean, I have no idea. A great guess. One more than Keith, but not good enough. It's four. Mm. Steven Adams, Kyle Anderson, Tyus Jones, and Chris Chris Dunn. Dunn. Oh, Chris Dunn. And Chris Dunn. All right, Andrew, three questions left. You're currently up five to two. Uh, I'll go three. When the Memphis Grizzlies relocated from Vancouver to Memphis for the 2001-2002 season, they became the easternmost Western Conference team in the NBA, taking the title from this team. Oh, man. Geography. Geography. 
Latitude. This, this the oh gosh, is this the Timberwolves? It is the Timberwolves. Andrew, you're on a roll. We are back to Keith. There's two questions left. Number four, number five. Number four. Number four. The Oklahoma City Thunder and Memphis Grizzlies met three times in the playoffs during the early 2010s. One of their most famous games was a triple overtime thriller on May 10th, 2011, with the Thunder winning 133 to 123. There were nine players who scored at least 10 points in that game, and we're going to try to name them all. So, Keith, you're going to give me a name, then we're going to go to Andrew. He'll give me a name. We'll go back and forth until one of you stumbles. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, Zach Randolph. That is correct. He scored 34 points. Uh, Andrew. We're just naming Grizzlies players or we're naming Thunder players too? Both, but from both teams. Nine players combined that had at least 10 points in that triple overtime thriller. Had at least 10 points. Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, 35 points. Jersey number. Back to Keith. Uh, Westbrook. Russell Westbrook scored 40 points. Back to Andrew. James Harden. James Harden scored 19 points. Back to Keith. I feel like just going for the Thunder players to try to exhaust those. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I might um, have just exhausted them. I feel like I did. Um, I'll do uh, Mark Gasol. Mark Gasol, Mark Gasol, 26 points. Back to Andrew. There are four names left. Um, who's the first one that Keith said? I'm not telling you. You're supposed to pay attention, Andrew. I was You're supposed to be a good I'm, listener. I know. I can't help you cheat. Um, okay. Gosh, this series, I just can't stop thinking about this guy. I don't know that he, if he scored this many in this game, but... Say uh, his name. Grievous Vasquez. Just like, Whoa! I can't Grievous believe it. I was saving that one. Just was like stomping the thunder. Like that whole series was driving me nuts. Did he do it? He did score 14 points. Well, Back he, to Keith. He hit the game tying three. Uh, in, yes. In one of the, I, I, I know. I'm it sad. Was, I'm sad that one got taken. Um, infuriating. Yeah. So there are three names left. Uh, OJ Mayo. OJ Mayo scored 18 points. Back to Andrew. Holy moly! I wish you would tell me the name that he said first. I just can't remember which Grizzlies. <laughs> I really want was. you to repeat it. I know you do. I know. I'm so going to count it. it, and then that will be, that will be it. Um. You know, I'm going to just take a stab, a stab in the dark. This guy okay. actually played well uh-huh. for OKC off the bench during this playoff series. One of the only guys that played. I'm going to say Daquan Cook. Hmm, let's see. Daquan Cook scored 10 points. <laughs> what? Andrew, that is correct. That means there is one name left. If Keith gets it right, he gets all oh, two points. Oh, man. I, I got to go Mike Conley. Absolutely. You guys got all nine, and Keith gets the points. Andrew gets nothing for his trouble. <laughs> but the Daquan Ooh. Cook was so good. I, I would have oh, never that, gotten that. That was a great pull. Because uh, I, I figured you'd go Serge Ibaka. Because that's kind of like the uh, – he only scored six yeah. points in that game. But that would be like the obvious pick. I just don't – I feel like I blacked out during the first portion of this thing, so I don't remember <laughs> the names that were being said. So I felt like I needed to stay away from, like, big names. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Andrew, you get first stab at the last question. Okay. Question number five. The grit and grind slogan was first uttered by Tony Allen in a post-game interview after a 27-point game. Later, Allen would say that the phrase was intended as a jab at this teammate who had sat out the game due to a hurt toe. 
Could be anyone. <laughs> Could be anyone's toe. They all have toes, Andrew. <laughs> no, this is true. Dude, I have I have no clue. I'm just going to bow out. I have no clue. Keith, do you know the answer? So I'm not, I'm confused about this cuz this this game lives in lore obviously for the Memphis Grizzlies. It, yeah. It was against the Thunder. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but the Who's but the me? but the story the story is that OJ Mayo beat up I mean that Tony Allen beat up OJ Mayo on a plane before this game. But really? but OJ Mayo was out with the flu. That's not a that's not a busted toe. Mm. So now mm. I'm confused about this hurt toe guy. Um I- uh, let me tell you what my source was. Okay. <laughs> this is all staying in, by the way. Now this is all this should this. this should all stay in. I, I, I like I feel nervous not guessing OJ Mayo, but I know he was out with the flu. He was out with a flu-like illness. That's what was put in the box score. So so I got to guess something else. So th- this was an interview he did with Mass Live. Tony Allen did this interview with MassLive.com. And in that interview, happened to retell this story. Now there could have been maybe there's multiple stories. So yeah, if Tony Allen's telling the story, there's there's almost no chance it's correct. <laughs> so so I, I don't know the uh, I don't know. Um, I'm gonna get. I'll guess Xavier Henry. A good guess. Oh. But. The hurt toe was from Rudy Gay, apparently. Oh, oh Rudy Gay! He threw, shy, he threw shade at Rudy. Apparently, and apparently, uh, Rudy even like tweeted about it, knowing that it was a jab at him. Of course, you can't see the tweet anymore. But that's interesting. So wow. he may have Tony Allen may have been covering up the true story. I don't in know. That interview. That's that's a great story. I mean, I I've heard Tony. Um, Throw some shade at Rudy before uh, telling yeah. stories about the NBA, so it's not, it's not that surprising. But yeah, I, huh. I didn't remember that. That's, that's that's interesting. Well, Andrew, you have tied it up one-one in the Andrew Ooh. versus Keith battle. What a nightmare! Stay Ooh. tuned for the rubber match. Yes, thank you, geography. <laughs> Keith, thanks so much for coming on the show. We appreciate all your Grizzlies knowledge. Be sure to follow Keith on Twitter at Fast Break. Break. You can also just go listen to his shows. Just great, great NBA content. Fast Break Breakfast, Grits and Grind, all part of Grind City Media. Keith, thanks so much, man. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so we are done with the Grizzlies, which means it's time once again to spin the wheel of fandom and find out who we'll be following for the next two weeks. We've still got nine teams on the wheel. It'll be very interesting when we get down to the bottom two. I just there's realized because then we're gonna okay, uh, okay. So there's there's a lot of fun teams on here. We got the Blazers. The Lakers are still on here. Yeah. Uh, Magic. Andrew just said he doesn't want the Magic, which means we're probably gonna get the let's Magic. So get, let's see obviously. who we're gonna get. We're spinning the wheel, and the wheel of fandom for next week will be the Los Angeles Lakers. Ooh. The Los Angeles Lakers. We get to talk Russell Westbrook. We get to talk LeBron James. We get to talk Carmelo Anthony. We get to we talk, get to talk Kendrick Nunn. We get Kendrick. to talk Malik Monk. Dude, the names, like, this is like the all-name team. I just, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's just insane. It's going to be, there's, there's, we might have to do like a two-hour pod about this team. I feel like there's just like nonstop questions that can happen with this crew. Yeah, for sure. Just unbelievable. So look forward to that again in two weeks. So that'll be that'll be after Lakers Media Day, right? Yeah, we're gonna have some stuff, man. We'll have some real stuff to talk about. So we don't. No more Joe Folks. 
We'll get get the folks out of here. Oh man, thanks so much for listening to the Saturday Slam and Jam. We really appreciate you guys. Be sure to subscribe to the Athletic NBA show. Be sure to go check out the Athletic again. You can get it half off if you go to theathletic.com/nba show. The NBA is just around the corner. We'll be back every single week here soon, so get ready for that. And until then, have a good one. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.